Turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 8. We're going to be looking at portions of Exodus 8 and Exodus 9 this morning. We're going to read larger sections of the text as we go through here instead of all at once, as we often do at the outset. Uh, We're walking through Exodus, the event of Exodus in the Old Testament, as well as the book that we have there from beginning to end. God has called a people to Himself, uh, His chosen. You have to go back to Genesis to to learn about that. Those people have uh, been enslaved in Egypt. Uh, They had to go to Egypt, and they were there for the exact number of of years, the time that God had uh, said they would be to Abraham. Now, 400 years later, it is time for deliverance, to bring them out of Egypt. Uh, He has not forgotten. He will never forget His people. Um, or disown them. So he has bound himself to them in covenant relationship. And now the Lord has stretched out his hand upon Egypt, striking the gods of Egypt through his servants Moses and Aaron. And so we're starting to get a rhythm into this pattern, seeing a pattern of how the Lord deals with the the obstinate and and stubborn-hearted Pharaoh. There's a pride there, a stubbornness, a hardened heart that the Lord knows all about. Um, doesn't surprise Him in, in any way. He's going to use that stubbornness uh, for His glory. Um, so that all peoples everywhere, Hebrew people, Egyptian people, later Canaanite people, Gentile peoples, um, people just like you, just like me, Um, will know that He is the Lord, that He alone is God. To Him be all glory, majesty, and praise. And God's people are going to sing that throughout the ages. Sing of His deliverance from slavery and the the clutches of Pharaoh. And just keep rehearsing and celebrating deliverance from sin. The clutches of death through the Lord Jesus Christ. So we need to keep that always before us as we read the details of Exodus. Considering these these plagues, these strikes from the hand of God uh, against Egypt. Um, the judgment of God on those who would defy Him is very real. It's inescapable. Just as real as His compassion and His mercy and patience. Uh, the God of Israel, the one who is, is holy and just and righteous. There's no sin that escapes him. I think that there, there's, there's no injustice, no wrong that is tolerated by his divine nature. But in that nature is mercy and grace, a slowness to anger, just an abounding in love, faithfulness. Um, so if we read the strikes by, by the hand of God and we think, whoa. That's a, that's a mean God. I mean, that's a little harsh, don't you think? You know, to treat people this way? I mean, that, that doesn't sound like a God of love to me. Certainly not a God I can love. Then we do not understand the character of the living God. Or the seriousness of our rebellion against Him in sin. We may not understand love as well as we thought. In short, it, if this is a mean and vindictive God, then we are still God. Now, from from the other angle, 
if we read this account, we think, yeah, that's my God. He's letting them have it. All rise for the judge. This is it. Getting exactly what they deserve. Then we do not understand the character of the living God. One who is not easily angered. One who is patient. Patient beyond any understanding we have of that word. Shows mercy. Gives relief. And no, no relief is warranted. He does this over and over again. One who delivers when no deliverance is possible. The character of God. The character of sin-scarred human beings. and The beauty of salvation. That is all on display as we look at this text in front of us. So two weeks ago, we looked at the first cycle of strikes in Egypt. That cycle of irritation. Lack of usable water from the Nile. There's frogs everywhere. Lice, little bugs covering everything. Um, pretty annoying. Would have made life very challenging, difficult. Um, certainly uh, less comfortable. But in this next cycle, it's ramping up. Things are more severe. Severe hardship for the people. Even death of their animals uh, will result in this, in this cycle. But Pharaoh's going to remain unmoved, untouched by this. Um, we have a similar introduction uh, in the most details, we get into this, this fourth plague as we did in the first, then a little less in, the, in uh, the fifth strike, and even less with the sixth. And so that's a pattern that repeats with each cycle. And in that first cycle, we, we listened, we looked, and we learned from each of the strikes. And instead of using those three L's again, I'm going to shrink it down to two questions. What happened and what happens now? What happened and what happens now? So we're going to pray and uh, look a little closer at this text. Father, we are grateful for Your Word to us. Your Word that is living and active. It is Your Word, Lord, that examines us, not the other way around. May we be submissive in our hearts to this Word. As You teach us, as You show forth Your, your power, Your patience, your control, sovereignty over all, and You show us our need to surrender to You. To Your grace. To Your faithfulness. Lord, make us attentive now. Guide our understanding. Only by Your Spirit can we begin to understand what it is You've placed before us. We thank You for this great story. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I've, uh, I've enjoyed sitting you know, at, at the picnic table eating breakfast several mornings over the last couple of weeks before it gets too uh, toasty warm outside. And I can enjoy eating my breakfast because I'm not doing this or you know, slapping the bugs who are enjoying me for breakfast. Um, it's, been, it's been nice because the bugs are still there. Oh, are they there? But they're sitting on the outside of the screen just a few feet away from me. Now, there's no such luxury in Egypt um, during the day or during the night. And even if there was, it wouldn't have made uh, any difference, um, which is what makes this next strike from the hand of God uh, so difficult. So you can follow along with me. Begin reading at verse 20 of chapter 8. The Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me. Or else, if you will not let my people go, behold, 
I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your houses. And the houses of all the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand. But on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell so that no swarms of flies shall be there that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Thus I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign shall happen, and the Lord did so. There came great swarms of flies into the house of Pharaoh and in, into his servants' houses. Throughout all the land of Egypt, the land was ruined by the swarms of flies. And Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Go, sacrifice to your God within the land. But Moses said, It would not be right to do so, for the offerings we shall sacrifice to the Lord our God are an abomination to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice offerings abominable to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not stone us? We must go three days' journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he tells us. So Pharaoh said, I will let you go to sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness. Only you must not go very far away. Plead for me. Then Moses said, Behold, I am going out from you, and I will plead with the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people tomorrow. Only let not Pharaoh cheat again by not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. So Moses went out from Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord. And the Lord did as Moses asked, and removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people. Not one remained. But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also, and did not let the people go. So the Lord warns Pharaoh that this is coming. If he does not let the people of Israel leave the land, they belong to him, they are there to worship him. Again, to worship, to serve, to offer sacrifices, it's all used interchangeably here to describe the very purpose of their release. Really what helps in eliminating this event again as some naturally occurring event is just you know a bad year for flies or maybe the perfect breeding grounds with all the stagnant water around the Nile is that there's going to be a distinction a distinction between God's chosen people and the Egyptians it's going to affect one and not the other it's going to be a torment to one and not the other that's not normal okay, we, we know insects and, and flies well enough that they are no respecter of persons. They'll go anywhere unless stopped. In this case, no flies, no biting insects in, uh, in a place where you would expect there to be flies and insects just like this. So if you're looking at me and, and Egypt is in front of you, the people of Israel are living up here in the northeast corner of Goshen, right where that Nile Delta comes together, kind of the east part of that. That's where you'd expect flies to be. And they're not there. Um, there's a miraculous distinction here, along with the severity of uh, these insects. And biting insects of some type, maybe several different types uh, here. We think of uh, mosquitoes or horse flies, those deer flies that can be uh, so very um, nasty. And Psalm 78 seems to indicate that that these swarms of insects, they weren't just buzzing around you know, to swat it. They were actually landing and, and hurting. Um, you know, how much work can you get done when you are constantly swatting at biting flies? How much rest can you get when that's happening? Um, 
Certainly not much at all. So we're, we're kind of moving beyond annoyance here. This is, this is debilitating for the people. So much so that Pharaoh, he, he goes to the bargaining table. He says, okay, you know, uncle, let's negotiate. Go, go sacrifice, but stay in the land. So he's, he's willing to go that far to, to make a concession, but not concede to the word of God. The law that God had given to him. Let my people go. And, and that's to be expected. It was a negotiation. But a negotiation that certainly wasn't going to work. Um, and this compromise, it's not going to allow the people of Israel to, to sacrifice, to make an atonement for sin that they need to make. Um, you know, bulls and goats, uh, these are, are sacred to the Egyptians. It would be, it'd be like you know, having a, a pig roast at the Jewish synagogue. Or maybe, you know, we're right here by the Sylvan Hills Bears. Get all, all dressed up in Bears attire and then go walk around North Little Rock High School. Or be an Ole Miss or LSU fan. and hey, That's probably worse than walk around Fayetteville or something like that. Okay, it's not going to end well. This is how people get hurt. Moses knows this. But the bottom line is that it's not in obedience to God's Word. There's no negotiation or, or compromise when it comes to submitting to the law of God. So Pharaoh agrees to let them go, but, but not far. He still wants to keep an eye on them. You know, and then demands that, that Moses pray for this relief. And now Moses is skeptical for good reason. He warns Pharaoh not to go back on his word, but he does take him at his word. I think it's important for us to remember that that Moses, you know, he hasn't recorded Exodus yet. He didn't know that there were going to be these nine strikes against Egypt. He knew the firstborn son of Pharaoh was in danger. He knew all about the danger to the firstborn. But when would that happen? So he prays. The Lord relents, but Pharaoh's heart is... Uh, unchanged. He's willing to negotiate in a pinch, as most people are with God. But when the trouble goes away, there's, there's relief in sight, then no more need for God. Um, so that's what happened. What happens now? Um, what do we see here that really informs our walk with the Lord? Um, you know, Pharaoh seems to be ready to compromise. And I wonder how sweet that would have sounded to Moses even if he knew that it really wasn't an option. You know, he doesn't, he doesn't bring it back to the Lord and say, well, Lord, Lord, what do you think about this? You know, it's not bad. Um, he knew the answer, but the temptation to compromise, that's a very real temptation. Um, we are to do what God instructs us to do because the instruction is coming from Him. I mean, he knows what gives Him glory and what is best for us in that process. Think of when Joshua speaks to the people of Israel near the end of his life. He says, Only be very careful to observe the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, to love the Lord your God and to walk in all His ways, and to keep His commandments and to cling to Him, to serve Him with all your heart and with all your soul. We, we don't hear any, any compromising language there. And from the mouth of Jesus who says, I have come not to abolish the law, or the prophets, but to fulfill them. 
Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. And later to his disciples, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. But the pride in our hearts, in our sin, we're more than ready to compromise. You know, we want to offer God partial obedience without disturbing the rest of life, the rest of our commitments. You say, look, I, I, I go to church. I worship with God's people most of the time. I, give, I even give resources to the church or other social causes that align with God's purpose for humanity, for the community. And these are good things. Certainly they'll account for, for something. You know, don't tell me I need to, to fight to put that sin to death or to make that sacrifice if I'm going to walk faithfully in Jesus. So come on now. Have, have your worship. Just don't leave Egypt. God requires, meets the desires of His people to obey and surrender completely to His grace. So these strikes in Egypt, they're by the hand of God. He's in control, but again, keep in mind that Moses doesn't have the whole story, the whole script in front of him. He doesn't know like we know that there's going to be nine strikes culminating in that, that tenth and the death of the firstborn. You know, maybe to him, Pharaoh had, had enough. I mean, what a relief that would be. And then Pharaoh goes right back. Talk about discouragement for the servant of the Lord. Even if it's playing out the way that the Lord told him it would play out, it's still discouraging. Um, he doesn't know how long this is going to last. Um, I think if, if I'm in that situation, I'm, I'm ready to throw in the towel. I don't know if I would have lasted up to strike four after the first one. Okay, I'm done. Lord, it's time for a different, different option. Um, I think we're there a lot, aren't we? You know, ready to throw in the towel when we're getting, getting nothing but hard-hearted stubbornness in response to our efforts to warn, to our efforts to encourage, maybe help. You, know, you go to someone really, really wanting to listen. You're going wanting to encourage, and they, and they turn on you, and you're just sort of you're blown away. You're listening. What just happened? What's going on here? Now consider the Lord Jesus, the true Moses who comes to help. One who comes with such patience. One who comes to warn that the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. And the response? Go away. Or lock him up. Or kill him. how grateful I am that Jesus didn't throw in the towel say, okay, I'm done. He didn't look, <laughs> he didn't look at, at, at me or at you and our, our stubbornness and our pride, the blindness that goes with it and say, I'm, I'm done. No, he, he went to the cross and said, it's done. It's finished. How do you respond to that? The true Moses who comes to help. How, do you, how are you responding to the power of God's sacrifice in the outstretched arms of Jesus. 
So God stretches out his hand again, warning Pharaoh, refuse to obey, refuse to let the people go, and there's going to be this severe plague. So let's pick it up. This is 9 verse 1. And the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. And the Lord set a time, saying, Tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. And the next day the Lord did this thing. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead. But the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. So now we're talking real plague here. Now we're talking pestilence on the livestock of Egypt, on these beasts of burden, cows, donkeys, horses, uh, camels, things that the people of Egypt would have really depended on, not just for transportation, but for, uh, for food, for clothing. This would have been a serious you know, economic hardship for them. Now, now we actually have destruction of their personal property. First, first strike we see where things are, are, are really dying. Um, so if Pharaoh is going to, to mistreat, give little regard to God's property to his people, then he would suffer the loss of his own property. Um, again, some suggest that this is you know, following a natural course of events, that the rotting of frogs and the ingestion of the flies, that created this uh, disease, but it's difficult to justify with the intensity and the severity of the plague, not to mention the timing of it. See that in verse 5, tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land, and the next day the Lord did this thing. So it leaves little doubt that this is it's a miracle by the hand of God. Uh, it doesn't touch the Israelite cows. Um, we can assume that distinction going forward, um, you know, even if Moses doesn't include that detail in uh, in each and every uh, plague, much like the timing between the strikes. You know, the idea here is you get the idea, it kept going like this. Makes for um, more interesting reading, narrative. So only the Egyptian livestock are affected, and, and the language there is not intended to communicate that every single cow and horse and camel died. Um, the, the all there is best understood as all sorts of livestock. Animals from all over the place ended up dying. So, and because we know more are going to die in the strikes uh, that are to come. Here's an initial wave by the hand of God. I think you know, the bull in particular was revered by the Egyptians. It was a symbol of uh, fertility, a symbol of potency among the people. Uh, sometimes they view the bull as embodying being that embodiment of a god, so they, they really did love their sacred cows. Um, so it shouldn't surprise us too much when the people of Israel, wandering in the wilderness, rebelling against the Lord, what do they fashion? Exodus 32, they fashion the golden calf. Um, and here we see Pharaoh is, is skeptical. He sends out this reconnaissance to Goshen to see if, if it really was just his people just as the livestock in, in, uh, for the Egyptians that were affected. Um, you know, may, maybe the Lord had turned on his people. Maybe he'd had enough. 
but their livestock was untouched. So it's looking, looking more and more like Goshen is the place to be. That's where you want to be. Property value is going up in Goshen. You want to be among this people. Um, so what happens now? Pharaoh has more than enough data here, right? He's more than enough to trust in. He's still refusing. He's still skeptical. He sends these investigators to Goshen to verify if there's been a distinction, which there has. So he knows it now, but he's unwilling to trust. Unwilling to believe what his mind knows to be true. Comes the time. Stop, you know, stop investigating. Stop doing a recon and, and believe what it is you're seeing. Um, his heart is stubborn, full of pride. You think, what, what does pride do in our hearts? It, it blinds us. It really does keep us from, from seeing our mistakes. Certainly from admitting our weaknesses. Read in Proverbs 11. It says, when pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with the humble is wisdom. If our hearts are, are proud and stubborn, then we're not going to receive advice well. We're certainly not going to receive criticism from others well at all. Why, why is it that when someone critiques us or they have a word to us, we can put a smile on and we can, can appear receptive, but inside we're thinking, what do you know? You don't know the situation. You can't speak into this. Just, you know, I don't want to hear it. Um, that's pride. Blinding us. It can lead us to make some very poor decisions. Later in Proverbs 27, we read, crush a fool in a mortar with a pestle along with crushed grain, yet his folly will not depart from him. So the fool may actually be broken by his foolishness, seeing the consequences to himself, to others, and yet he remains a fool. How foolish is Pharaoh in his pride? Forgetting the strikes, if they're not even happening even when he sees a suffering to himself and to, uh, to his people. So remembering, calling to mind the faithfulness of God. Sharing in the sufferings of our Savior. That begins to break down pride. Allows us to view reality um, with greater clarity. So that the final strike in this cycle, uh, cycle of hardship, begins in verse 8. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take handfuls of soot from the kiln and let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. It shall become fine dust over all the land of Egypt, and become boils breaking out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. So they took soot from the kiln and stood before Pharaoh. And Moses threw it in the air and it became boils breaking out in sores on man and beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils. The boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh. And he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. You know, nothing really gets our attention as quickly as physical suffering. Um, that, that, that touches us real, real quick. And so God uses this ash, this soot, transforms it into boils on the people, on animals. Uh, there's some who think this was a type of anthrax or a type of leprosy where these boils would blister on the skin. Uh, extremely unpleasant. So much so that the magicians, you know, his advisors could no longer give him advice. 
So, so Moses can stand in the stand before Pharaoh, but these magicians they can't stand before Moses. And this is the last time that we're going to read about these magicians that they're even going to be mentioned in this story. They're utterly defeated, utterly humiliated by this. Um, I think that the wicked, the rebellious against God will be defeated. They cannot stand in that day of judgment. This is how the songbook of God's people starts in the Psalms. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, or sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. The wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. Yet that day is coming, we read this in Revelation 16, that those who reject Christ give no regard to the law of God, will be plagued with the painful sores of God's wrath. Now, where else can we go with this? The, the Egyptians, they really looked to their gods for healing. I mean, they were known for their trust in medicine. Um, there was a, a lion-headed goddess named Sekhmet who was supposed to be the one that had the power to inflict disease or to remove disease from the people. And she had a priesthood that, that would ward off viruses with their potions and their amulets and things like that. But these Egyptian gods are powerless. They could do nothing. They could not heal. They could put a band-aid over the boils. But they couldn't get rid of, these, of this disease. And so I think of the trust that we often put in our certainly in our advances of information and the practices of modern medicine. Um, I mean, it's amazing, absolutely amazing what we have learned and continue to learn about the human body. I was talking to our, our brother Micah this last week as he was sharing some things he's been reading about the structure of certain cells and the long-term implications if just these pieces go unchecked. You know, the way that we can scan and and treat and repair the human body. I mean, some of those things weren't even an option when many of us were younger that are available now. But what do we trust in for healing? Who do we trust to really care for our bodies? We really cannot put our faith, we must not put our faith, our trust, dare I say, our worship, in medicine. Healing and the care of our bodies comes from God. Jesus is Lord of the body. And so we look to Him and we, we trust Him for all things spiritual and physical. And He gives us understanding. So here He gives us understanding. He uses the practices and the procedures and the treatments to fulfill His purpose. Right? We know that firsthand. But the power is His to heal. Um, so something else that, uh, that continues to surface as we read these strikes from the hand of God is the hardness of Pharaoh's heart. Um, this cycle, uh, and I think this cycle in particular gives a great summary of what this means and how to understand it the best that we can. Uh, in 8.32, it says it, it's Pharaoh that hardens his heart. He's the, the responsible agent. Uh, and then in 9 verse 7, it says his heart was hardened. We have no, no agency there. And 9 verse 12, we read that the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. So which is it? Well, it's both. God is sovereign 
over the heart of Pharaoh. Pharaoh can do nothing that surprises him or is outside of his control. And Pharaoh is responsible for his actions. That's just strange for us. We struggle comprehending this here where the Bible is so very clear. God is patient with Pharaoh who is accountable to him for every denial of his power. Yet God will be glorified through this stubborn, prideful heart that's not going to move until the exact time that the Lord determines. He put Pharaoh on the planet for this very purpose. And Pharaoh's free to make his decisions. Just like our first parents are free in the garden to submit to the Word of God or not. So wait, you mean to tell me that that God knew that Adam and Eve would disobey in the garden? Yes. Yes, He did. And through His plan of salvation that followed, followed His covenant people of old to fulfillment in Jesus Christ, we see the greatness of His grace. If you really want to spend time considering, take, take, take some time looking at Romans chapter 9, Ephesians 1 together to really chew on and ponder the sovereignty of God. Have you ever received one of those recall notices? Uh, typically they're in the mail or email, often in, in association with a vehicle. Um, sometimes it's no big deal, it's a locking mechanism or something that you never use on the car. Um, but sometimes it's a very big deal. And it could be life or death if you don't get this corrected. Um, so when you receive that recall notice, the responsibility is now yours, either to take the vehicle in or not. So I think here, as Pharaoh, Pharaoh and all of humanity to this day has been given this recall notice. If there's something not right. There's a, there's a fatal flaw in us that is due our sin. And the right judgment that that brings before God. It's destroying us. It will continue to only end in death unless it's corrected. And we get that, you know, continue that illustration. We get the overhaul. We get the new parts that only God can give through faith in Jesus. I mean, ignoring that notice, that is dire consequences for eternity. So look to Christ in faith. He's, he's the only fix. Faith and submission to Him brings true freedom. And he has come for the chosen of God. You need to remember, there, there's nothing, nothing special here about the Israelites. They are rebellious, idolatrous people who are no better than the Egyptians. They are just as worthy of God's judgment, even more so as the story goes on. But the Lord has chosen them. They are His. And that that in itself is the guarantee of their freedom. Look at Deuteronomy 7. Moses reminds God's people of this who are very prone to forget then and right now. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping an oath that He swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love 
with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. God is saving his people because he is bound to them. He has bound himself to us by the, the uncompromising obedience of his son. He makes the distinction. God's grace is God's choice. And there is blessing and freedom in Goshen, even with the opposition and the dying around them. Real freedom comes to those in Goshen. Real freedom comes to those who look to Christ. Those who have been released from sin, from the slavery of sin, free to worship, free to offer our lives in service to Him. Let's be those people as His church. Let's pray together. Lord, there's much for us to consider and contemplate as we see Your outstretched arm of judgment and of long-suffering and great patience with those You have made. Lord, may this move us to worship You, to live before You in un- uncompromising the word that you've given to us. We are grateful that there is one who has gone before us, taken the burden of our sin, who has lived in perfect obedience to you, whose passive and active righteousness we are now clothed. We thank you, Lord Jesus. Go before us now as we seek to serve you in this day and in this week. In Christ's name, amen.